Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and sometimes, accidentally, in spite of myself, something funny or interesting happens. This is Previously Live. Hello? Yo! Can you hear me fine? Yeah! Hit us up with your name, the shit you do, and your pronouns. Give us the goddamn, give us the, the news. Okay, hi, I'm Zoe Baker. I'm transgender, pronouns she, her. I'm a YouTuber. I have recently submitted a PhD on the revolutionary strategy of anarchism in Europe and the United States between 1868 to 1939. Wait, what's your major? If that's if you can get away uh, with submitting a thesis on that. <laughs> I did a degree in philosophy at Cambridge, um, and then I moved on to doing my PhD in basically history and uh, politics. Jesus, okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm an expert in dead white men with beards and what they thought about various things. And that's about it. Like with a PhD, you know a huge amount about a really narrow topic and nothing about anything else. Cause I literally haven't read anything else for like four years. <laughs> I've just been like living in the 19th century. Gotcha. Um, well, um, then I appreciate the fact that you know how to use discord, I guess. <laughs> well, I am also a PC gamer, uh, the most okay. depressed class. Okay. So if I remember correctly, um, you, so I, I've, I've been aware of you for a while. You weren't following me on Twitter. Generally, if a person's not following me on Twitter, I assume it's because they dislike me. And generally that tends to be the case. But I saw the other day that you called me a quote, fucking uh, R slur. Uh, you, you used an ableist slur um, against me. And then you said, this guy doesn't know shit about anarchism. So I was wondering Doesn't if you could sound clarify. like me. <laughs> I was wondering I if you could clarify this incredibly heated language uh, that you've used to describe me and my positions. Well, so I, I'm I'm much more polite than that. Um, I've merely said that I think you're wrong. Um, but so I I don't follow anyone on Twitter. As, um, so that, that's that's why I'm not following you or anyone else. Gotcha. My ego uh, has been assuaged. I was kidding, chat, by the way. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay, so uh, hit me up. Or do you want me to, like, give you, like, my general... Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can just go into it. Because I, I watched a video of yours that uh -huh. I had some thoughts on. Uh -huh. um, so I, I, I've been studying Vouch Thought um, before I came on. Because I didn't want to misrepresent you. Um, so you, I've noticed on Twitter you call yourself a libertarian socialist. And then I saw your video on how to build, build socialism. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised that the main thing you advocated in that video was electoral politics, especially at a local level, in order to spread socialist ideas and win immediate reforms. Mm -hmm. um, historically, the people who advocated that strategy were Marxists, who at the time were called social democrats, uh, which doesn't have its modern meaning. It initially meant like revolutionary Marxists who want communism. Mm -hmm. And now it's changed to meaning people who want welfare states uh, under capitalism. But yeah, leaving I, that aside. I think, um, I, I just want to say, I, I guess confused. one of my main frustrations, I, first of all, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Participating in electoral politics doesn't disclude one from participating in direct action or vice versa. So I feel like a lot of people, I don't know, they get really antagonistic about the idea of doing both. But 
My issue here, I think, is that I feel like a lot of lefties, especially lefties online, really, really understate the extent to which participation in electoral politics can be used as a vehicle to radicalize other people. Now, I'm not one of those losers who thinks that we're just going to vote in socialism. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But if you take a look at the 2016 election, you know, with Bernie Sanders or what have you, and I notice this because I live here, the discourse, the perspective on leftism, the willingness to challenge institutional power massively increased as soon as Bernie Sanders, who was before just the independent senator, gave words to these ideas. And I think that's a more credible avenue for advancement than the idea that like a highly decentralized and sort of well, I guess almost anarchic approach to radicalizing individuals ever could. Now, I, I think both should be done, but like a lot of people, they just seem to like, they hate the idea of participating in electoralism. It's very strange to me. Okay, so what, what I wanted to say was, so first of all, uh, I agree that they're not mutually exclusive and historically um, Marxists who were called social democrats did advocate both. Uh, the main social democratic parties and the second international uh, didn't just do electoral politics, they were also massively interconnected with the trade union movement and counterculture and direct action. They didn't just do electoral politics. Um, but what I wanted to outline was the anarchist or libertarian socialist critique of the state socialist strategies. And my goal isn't to, as it were, kind of totally own you with all the facts and the logic in a Ben Shapiro manner, but more just give the reasons for why anarchists rejected these strategies mm -hmm. um, and hopefully give you and your audience something to think about, even if you disagree. I think it's really important that we look at the best arguments and you know, think about things seriously um, rather than you know go going after the, the weakest ones. Uh, I'm not going to be arguing against voting for the least bad candidate. I am uh, historically anarchist did reject voting for reasons that I'm not going to uh, go into. Um, but I think in current circumstances, I absolutely would have voted for Biden to get Trump out. Um, I think we should vote for the, the, the candidate that we want to overthrow, um, not because we think they're going to make society a better place, but I would rather fight Trump. Uh, sorry, I'd rather fight Biden than fight Trump. Uh, so I think we agree on that. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about was electoral politics as a means to achieve uh, a stateless class of society in the long term as one of the means we use, as opposed to the sole means. You know, I'm not aware of any historic socialist which advocated it as a sole means. It was always uh, alongside other strategies. Um, and so the anarchist argument uh, was as follows, which is that so to understand, you at first have to understand what's called the unity of means and ends. And this is like a core anarchist principle. Um, so I'm going to quickly read out a very short quote by one of my favorite uh, dead guys with beards called Malatesta, who's an Italian anarchist. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says the following. It is not enough to desire something. If one really wants it, adequate means must be used to secure it. And these means are not arbitrary, but instead cannot be but conditioned by the ends we aspire to and by the circumstances in which the struggle takes place. For if we ignore the choice of means, we would achieve other ends possibly diametrically opposed to those we aspire to. And this would be the obvious and inevitable consequence of our choice of means. Whoever sets out on the high road and takes a wrong turning does not go where he intends to go, but where the road leads him. So what is this saying? What it's saying is that the goals you have will determine the ends, sorry, the goals you have will determine the means you use because you can use means which, irrespective of your intentions, lead to the totally different thing than what you initially intended. 
So for example, I could want to achieve a stateless classless society, but then use the exact same means as fascists. And instead of creating a communist society, I end up creating like a totalitarian dictatorship where me and my friends are in charge, even though that's not what I set out to do. But the means took on a life of their own and they transformed both me and social relations such that I ended up somewhere where I hadn't actually intended to be so uh, in the first place. If I were to make an inference, I would guess then that your argument is going to be that whatever my end intentions, the use of electoralism to propagate socialist thought will inevitably set material conditions which lead to um, the existence of the state being central to whatever society is developed from those thoughts. That my radicalization will invariably you know, be central or be organized around the state apparatus. Uh, that would be one component, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, oh. So... I, I don't have a I don't have a doctorate, so you're going to have to grind it down for me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, please I, continue. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to be as clear as possible. Um, so to understand this, we have to understand how anarchists like think about social change, and this is actually how Marxists also think uh, historically. So they think that human beings uh, have capacities, which are ability to do things. Uh, you have um, drives, which are like your motivations, and these can be conscious or unconscious, and you have your um, consciousness, by which they mean just like how you experience and think about the world. And they thought that when you engage in actions, you simultaneously change yourself, you develop new capacities, uh, new drives, uh, new consciousness, and you change social relations. So for example, workers go on strike, they, uh, in so doing, develop capacities, like now they know how to organize in a trade union, they acquire new drives, they want to stand up to their boss, and they change their consciousness. They now think that trade unions are a really good thing when before they didn't. And they've also created new social relations uh, amongst themselves within the trade union that they formed. Uh, and this is called the theory of praxis, uh, which Marx you know, also believes in. So they've then applied this to everything. Uh, including state socialist strategies. They thought, well, if what kinds of activity we're engaging in will transform individuals and social structures, depending on the kinds of activity it is, right? So like, if you're engaging the activity of being a Twitch streamer, that's going to develop you in a way that's very different from if you're spending all your time like reading fiction or teaching yourself how to draw. Mm -hmm. uh, and likewise, if a social movement is devoting all its resources and energy to, say, trade unions that engage in direct action, that's going to develop people in social relations in a different direction to if you're doing, say, trade unions plus electoral politics. So anarchists made two main predictions about, well, they made three main predictions, but I'm going to focus on two that I think are most relevant to electoral politics. So he made two main predictions about what would happen to the first Marxist parties, which, which were established in parallel to them during the late 1870s, early 1880s. So the two predictions they made were as follows. Firstly, state socialists were wrong to think that they would enter the existing capitalist state, transform it from within, and use it as a tool to build towards socialism. Instead, what would happen is that the capitalist state, which is a hierarchical institution that perpetuates the power of the economic and political ruling classes, would transform them. They would be gradually corrupted by power, and they would come to be concerned with expanding and maintaining it, rather than working towards a stateless classless society. And anarchists didn't think this would happen because socialist politicians would be transformed into evil caricatures. Like, I think Bernie Sanders cares about people, he has good intentions. I think the same is true of Corbyn, and the same is true of a huge number of historic socialist politicians. What anarchists thought would happen is that socialist politicians, given the right 
situation would do awful things to preserve and expand their own power whilst thinking that they were doing it to advance the cause of socialism. And that's because they've come to view themselves and their power as indispensable to the achievement of moving towards socialism. Well, that's basically that, Lenin's entire history, isn't it? Yeah, that, that is what happened to Lenin. It's what happened to Stalin. It's what happened to the Bolsheviks. And that prediction, I think, came true. And I'm gonna, I've got some good examples. Uh, but the second uh, prediction they made very quickly uh, is that it's not just that socialist politicians would in general be corrupted and come to be concerned with perpetuating and expanding their own power rather than abolishing it in favor of a classless, stateless society. They also thought that what would happen is that you have these Marxist parties, which are beginning with these programs, which are explicitly advocating the abolition of capitalism. They're explicitly advocating the free association of free producers, which is one of the historic terms for socialism. So they're extremely radical. They're advocating gender equality. They're opposed to racism. Um, generally not so good on uh, gays, unfortunately, but they, they do tend to generally advocate women's emancipation and are against racism. They're in favor of internationalism. So they are unbelievably super radical and progressive for the, for the late 19th century. And what anarchists thought would happen is that when order to win elections at both a local and a national level, they're going to need to, to, to secure as many votes as possible by appealing to as many people as possible. And keep in mind, this is before universal suffrage exists, so there's like a smaller number of people who can vote. Um, but they're going to have to appeal to non-socialists who would otherwise vote for Republican or liberal political parties. And the need to appeal to as many voters as possible would force socialist politicians to reduce their political program to very minor reforms to capitalist society. So these Marxist parties would then have to form political alliances with bourgeois political parties like the Republican or Democratic Party of their time in order to form coalition governments or successfully pass reform laws in parliament. And then these alliances and all the compromises they're having to make would make them over time dilute their political program more and more until they're calling themselves socialists, but their actual politics are just about reforms within capitalist society, even though they began wanting much more um, radical transformations. Mm -hmm. And both of these predictions came true. I have mixed um, opinions on this. Well, I, I've got some good examples. So in France, uh, you have socialist politicians who enter into the capitalist state. And these are people who'd initially advocated uh, the general strike. So there's a guy called Aristand Briand, uh, whose name I always can never say. But in 1910, he um, becomes Minister of the Interior, and he then smashes a French railway strike by arresting the strike committee and conscripting the railway workers into the army, uh, which means that if they don't uh, obey and end the strike, they'll be subject to martial law and then could be punished by execution for disobeying orders. Pretty um, sneaky. So, and they're examined with a number of different uh, socialist politicians in various countries, but the really big example of how electoral politics negatively affected these Marxist parties full of, you know, genuine committed socialists who wanted good things uh, is the German Social Democratic Party. So this was the largest Marxist party in the world. It received millions of votes in elections. It won a large number of seats in the German parliament. It makes you know Bernie Sanders or Corbyn look extremely unsuccessful in comparison to what they were doing, uh, while being much more radical and much further to the left. Um, and we know how this story ends, at least for yeah, a couple so, of participants. So yeah, yeah. Uh, spoiler warning: <laughs> if you haven't. Uh...
about this. So over time, they become increasingly reformist and genuine revolutionaries within the party had less and less influence. Uh, and what this culminates in is that the majority of the politicians who'd been elected um, into uh, the German parliament vote for war credits in 1914 and thereby enable uh, Germany to enter World War I. Even though prior to this, the party had been committed to anti-imperialism and opposition to war uh, and claimed that they would you know, oppose any war were it to happen. Um, and a few years later in 1918, the new leader of the Social Democratic Party, he becomes Chancellor of Germany. And just as anarchist theory had predicted would occur, he proceeded to be concerned with maintaining and expanding his own power while thinking he was doing this to um, advance the cause of, of workers. And this was achieved through crushing the socialist German revolution through far-right uh, militias and the murder of genuine revolutionaries who had been members of the Social Democratic Party, so most famously Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. Yes. Um, and then we fast forward to today and what was the largest Marxist party in the world, which was the model for Marxists internationally in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, like all the Bolsheviks in Russia were German social democratic fanboys. They loved Kalkowski, who was the main intellectual of German social democracy. Uh, this was unbelievably influential and important as a social movement. Fast forward to today, what was the largest Marxist party in the world is now just another capitalist party. So... Both the main two anarchist predictions, which is that socialist politicians wouldn't change the capitalist state, it would change them. They would become concerned with reproducing, expanding their power. That prediction came true with huge costs to social movements and bloody state repression. Uh, and the second prediction uh, was that over time, these radical Marxist parties would, due to the inherent nature of electoral politics, become less and less um, radical over time and end up cease to be socialist and just become another capitalist party. That also came true. There's a reason why today when we talk about social democrats, we don't mean revolutionary communists uh, and Marxists like we did in the 19th century. And that's because of the history of Marxist social movements themselves, where these parties over time um, became um, unradical and became capitalist. Uh, now, may I interject? Yes, you can go. I've, I've explained. <laughs> I hope that was clear. So I understand the premises, and I agree with them, I think. Um, my issue, though, is that you can never finish a calculation until you understand both sides of the equation. And I'm interested in, well, a couple of things. Some key points that I'm thinking of right now. First of all, even if the participation of socialists in the electoral politics, um, even if that does lead necessarily to the watering down of their platform, it could be conceivable that their participation in electoral politics nonetheless served as a bulwark against fascism or against the conservative movement of their countries. For example, I know that many of the Scandinavian countries, while it may then be true that the socialists of the early 20th century uh, formed parties which are now considered social democrat parties, the country is much better for them and they also serve as a... Um, handy means of radicalization, at the very least, against social austerity and, in some cases, against fascism. Obviously, that didn't turn out very well in Germany, uh, because uh, Germany uh, ended up going fascist anyway, but that got, you know, there got complicated, um, and many people were at fault for that. Um, additionally, I wonder about the alternative program. 
See, for me, one of the big issues I have, this is something Marx said, you know, the workers cannot seize the state ready means. The, essentially, you, socialism isn't just when the state is something that you control rather than something the bourgeois control. But the problem that I have is that all of this anarchist and socialist theory was written in a time where, generally speaking, you could take a block of people, you could take farmers, you could take factory workers, and given the right conditions, these people could live, they could meet their subsistence needs, even without the intervention of the state or the corporations they worked for. Generally speaking, economies were local, economies were um, uh, fairly decentralized, but nowadays the, the global economy is so complex and interconnected that any attempt to, well, seize the means of production without seizing the economic structure that we rely on will end not only in unfathomable turmoil for the country that does so, famine and war and resource conflicts, but will also lead to us being so militarily weak that it would be ridiculous for neighboring countries to not take advantage of the power vacuum. So I guess my, my ultimate concern here is that I feel like we're, we're kind of off on the wrong foot to begin with. We're fighting a losing battle. The more complicated the state and economic apparatuses become, the harder it is for us to achieve our goals. There's a reason why right now some of the most functioning examples of anarchism are in like, uh, well, you have, uh, you know, the Rojava project, for example. But these aren't modern, first world, interconnected, geopolitically connected economies that are turning anarchist. These are usually, you know, um, ravaged areas that can do what they do because there was no pre-existing apparatus to destroy. But in America, I can't fathom any road towards socialism in America which does not involve some deft subversion, some subterfuge, a sleight of hand, where we seize control of the state apparatus. I just, there are so many things that could go wrong if we don't. And the fact of the matter is that even for the most impoverished worker in America today, even for the poorest, even those without health insurance, the odds of their lives being made substantively better through some sort of radical decentralized revolution is incredibly low. The same couldn't be said of farmers or peasants back in Russia 150 years ago, because the relationship they would have to the consequences of a revolution was very, very, very different. Today, it seems like our only avenue forward, the best shot that we have, is to slowly and incrementally move our country to a position where the bourgeois, you know, are feel as though they need to enact anti-democratic countermeasures, um, whether that be some manner of a coup, or whether that be the, the, the revitalization of unions in this country, which leads to them cracking down. Um, and, and that would be a, a flashpoint, a threshold that would allow us to meaningfully challenge them. Because if we can do so in a context where they initiate aggression, it seems like it seems like we could get away with enacting a lot of very rapid reform very, very quickly without necessarily incurring the ire of the population and without destroying the infrastructure the people in this country rely on. I, and that's not even to speak of the benefit of opposing fascism as well. I mean, if we weren't to participate in electoralism, I don't know. Bernie Sanders moved the Democratic platform a good chunk to the left in 2016. If he hadn't, I wonder how Biden would have done this time around if he would have lost to Trump because he wasn't even capable of emptily posturing towards social democracy? I wonder, you know? Liberals aren't on their own really equipped to fight off fascism. It feels like they need our help a little bit. Anyway, those are my main points. Um, but if you have okay. any responses um, to them, yeah. 
Yes, so first of all, um, I agree with you that, yeah, like European social democracy, um, as in cap you know, capitalism with a strong welfare state mm -hmm. and some nationalization of industry, that's much better than uh, fascism. Uh, and um, German anarchists who survived um, World War II, uh, who had to flee Nazi Germany, uh, to not be killed like other anarchists were in, in Germany. Uh, yeah, afterwards, uh, in the late 20th century, they're like, yeah, no, this is lib liberal capitalism is definitely much preferable to fascism. Uh, so, you know, even even they thought that. I would have um, <laughs> uh, the second point is that we there are lots of historic examples of movements winning immediate reforms solely through direct action uh, and anarchists were, was historically mainly a movement of trade unions uh, engaging in direct action to win immediate reforms and that was a core part of the strategy where they thought that they didn't think a revolution was just going to happen and yeah everything's great instead we have to slowly build up a mass movement which is capable uh, of uh, launching that revolution uh, and a key concern for this was actually precisely to do with what you say about infrastructure and meeting people's needs uh, they thought that because of how complicated the economy was when they were writing, because this is during the first period of, of mass globalization, uh, where you're having the development of, you know, like our modern capitalist economies, uh, they thought that given how complicated this is, uh, we can't expect that during revolution everything will work out and we won't have, say, massive famines. And they were really terrified of this happening. And they thought, therefore, we have to create mass movements, which don't just win immediate reforms like the eight hour day, but also teach workers in large numbers how to uh, make decisions, how to coordinate over a large area, uh, how to um, live in a manner that is similar to the kinds of social structures which will exist in an anarchist society. And this is why anarchist trade unions like the CNT, um, which had a membership of um, 800,000 um, for quite a significant period of existence, and it goes up to the millions during the revolution in 1936. But, um, this was structured as a mirror image of an anarchist society, not only because they thought this was a good way of organizing, but so it would prepare workers um, such that during a revolution, they would have the skills necessary to uh, organize infrastructure, make sure production continues smoothly and people's needs uh, are being met. So people, you know, don't starve uh, during a revolution. But I would never disagree um, with any of this though. No, I mean, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm just explaining like- based and pog-pilled to me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> just hearing about it. But my, but my concern though is, how could we ever look to see unions, unions and trade organizations come back in this country without changes to electoral policy? The Republicans and the Democrats are both pretty anti-union, but certainly the Republicans more so than the Democrats. And even then, a couple of reforms pushed through by social Democrats or by AOC types might be an impetus for us to make meaningful movements there. Right now, unions are dead in this country, dead as they've ever been. I mean, they're like, they might as well not even exist, frankly. The idea of unionizing a workplace like off the cuff, there are so many disadvantages you're coming into it with. It seems to me like if we're to make any meaningful direct action happen through stuff like trade unions, that we would need to rely on the beneficence of our masters to an extent, or we, be, or we become those masters to the, to the greatest possible extent. Well, so historically, lots of anarchist trade unionism occurred in a context where trade unions were illegal where trade unionists would be beaten up and tortured by the police, where trade unionists would be assassinated uh, by hired really guns today? by capitalists. 
Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen today, but my point is they were doing trade unionism in much worse conditions than today. Well, sure, but uh, people back then were cooler in general than us today. <laughs> um, so, but I likewise think that although it's obviously really difficult to just you know rebuild um, ex you know, existing trade union movements, I think that it is, it is possible and we're in much less extreme circumstances now than people were historically who managed to do a huge amount despite you know much worse state repression well, this um, is one of the I'm, I'm sorry i don't mean to interject i just i'm really interested in this point so i want to hammer in on it um this is one of the reasons why i think a lot of people believe this i believe this as well that the 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 vanguard of socialism will almost necessarily be in the global south because it feels like right now in America, nobody's willing to make any meaningful concessions to their livelihood or to their well-being to advance workers' goals. But you have other countries around the world where people will literally fucking fight and die to, to, for the right to unionize. Nobody's going to do that in America. That's never happening in America. I support any measures taken possible to bolster the rights of workers abroad. And I think and if they could do socialism and if they could do that, and we could, I don't know, hold the CIA back to prevent them from doing what they do. I think that would be delightful. But in America today, like, we aren't, we aren't going to have any, like, people fighting and dying for union rights. Americans don't even think unions matter. I don't think the average American even understands the relationship between, like, unions and wages. I don't think, I think they just think, like, it's an extra boss you pay money to, you know? Um... So if I had to ask you, like, what would your route forward be in, in, in America for, like, affecting meaningful change, which would, which would require I not advocate for participation in electoralism? Because I wouldn't disagree with any of the direct action stuff. I just wonder, like, to what extent do you think I'm harming the movement here? Um, so I, I think that the... So first point is that there's loads of people in our society who are all doing loads of different things that result in the direction in which it, it goes in, right? There's multiple different social forces, and irrespective of what I as a socialist or other anarchists uh, say or do, there are going to be loads of other people who, irrespective of what we say, are going to be doing, say, electoral politics. They're going to be trying to uh, push things in that direction. That's going to occur independently of, of what I'm doing as a socialist. So I think the question is, what should committed socialists do as a way to intervene within this ongoing social process that is occurring? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that historically, loads of the main wins which have been won through direct action didn't actually occur within formal like, organizations. Uh, it occurred through mass disruption uh, and social movements that emerged in response to ongoing um, crises or issues that people were facing. Where, you know, we've seen this, say, with the protests in America against police brutality. Things get so extreme that an increasingly large number of people decide to take action um, in order to try and uh, change the conditions under which uh, that they're living. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I, I don't, I understand, I don't think, say, like trying to build an exact mirror image of the CNT uh in 20 in 21st century america is necessarily going to be like a, a viable immediate strategy but that can only but that can something... only do anything if the leaders make those concessions right well I'm... yes like for example when the cnt organized the massive general strike in 1919 which resulted in them being the first country in europe to have the eight hour day and that was imposed on the ruling class through pressure from below and that's why i think we should uh, win immediate reforms in a way that builds the power of the working class, uh, enables them to take direct action and transform their lives themselves, rather than um, learning to 
hope hope a politician is going to make things better for them. Well, of course, um, but that's with a general strike. We can't do a general strike in America right now. We're not even close to being able to do that. The degree of worker organization and class solidarity necessary to coordinate that many people to strike, we're not even close to being capable of that. Right now, all we can do is protest. But protests don't do shit unless the president or whoever is willing to make concessions. BLM hasn't really achieved anything. And a lot of that, well, let's be real. If Biden was president, or if Hillary was president, it's not like it would have done much that way either. But we protests, even historic protests, BLM, tens of millions of people participated in it. Like, we don't get much from that. But that's the limit of what America can do right now. Strikes. Now, if we could do proper general strikes, if we could, if we could have people hammering out the railways, if we could have people blocking trucks, if we could have people, you know, not going to Costco to work, then we could get pretty much anything we wanted. You know, we're basically the economic center of the world next to China, but we can't do that. And we can't do that because we don't even have the, the necessary preconditions to form any kind of worker solidarity, you know? Zanab, I think to, in order to engage those preconditions, you have the thing that should be focused on is trying to organize what direct action you can um, and radicalize um, increasing large numbers of people through that who become mobilized and participate in things. You know, France, for example, has a, a much more, uh, how to put it, vibrant culture of um, oh, rioting yeah. oh, and yeah. uh, protesting than, for example, in the UK, where the left is overwhelmingly focused on entryism into the Labour Party, which consistently fails. Um, and I, I, I feel that the, obviously, it's the case that protests often don't really um, change a huge and much because the ruling class can just go well we're going to ignore you and if you get a bit too excited we're going to repress you and that's usually the standard response yeah. um but when there comes a point where disruption is so huge they are then forced to to give into concessions and given that that mass disruption uh, is how to uh, achieve, achieve things uh i think that that the focus should be on trying to build towards that mass disruption and i don't think um electoral politics will move things in that direction where you can begin to have large mass working class mobilizations taking direct action. I think it will instead tend to result in people focusing on, say, uh, trying to make the Democratic Party slightly less extremely right wing than it is. But if the uh, Democratic Party is able to pass some, um, some, some, some policies that make it easier to unionize, or maybe protections to protesters. I mean, like general, like Attorney General Barr was looking at sedition charges to BLM protesters. In an environment like that, we can't do anything. But the Democratic Party is weaker. It's weaker in the sense that it's not as willing to meaningfully oppose worker action. It still is, but not to the same extent. And it's also not as voraciously anti-union. If you work to get enough of them justice stems in power, just enough of them to move things around, a little bit of influence, you could conceivably get some reforms passed to unions or even advocacy for the necessity of unions. I mean, I think that would be well, uh, I think the kinds incalculably of helpful. I think, so, you know, not all unions are created equal. I think historically the kinds of unions that big political parties such as the Democratic Party tend to back are bureaucratic top-down ones that are the mediator between capital and labor. They don't actually push class struggle forward. They, in fact, actively try to prevent workers from engaging in militant direct action. What um, about Bernie? And so, yeah, if, if you want to, well, I'm not necessarily talking of, about Bernie, but more like, say, the history of 
political parties in America in in, in the kind of um, Great Depression onwards. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, massively I'll, I'll... consolidated huge bureaucratic trade unions, which then um, meant there was much less militancy uh, and much more kind of bargaining and and less direct action than there had occurred, say, during the Great Depression, when a huge amount of it occurred outside of, tra- of organized trade unions. Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, disagree with what, that. What, it's just we only have so occurred, many roads in front of us, right? I mean, if we, so right now we know we can't do a general strike. It's never going to happen. Look at what's happening right now in the United States with rent payments. We're going through like the dark winter. Nobody can pay their rent. The government is directly responsible. We haven't seen any, no Molotovs thrown. It's ridiculous. France would be on fire right now in the, in, 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 in the same, you know, position. Um, but here in America, like we need something. Do you really think it's so harmful to try to promote the political advocacy of candidates who are more likely to support unions? I mean, Bernie Sanders, he didn't become president, so he didn't pass any union reform or anything like that. But he definitely got people more on board with the idea of worker solidarity. I feel like we have a long, long mountain to climb, but getting at least a little bit of a little bit of a concession from the federal government is a necessary prerequisite because right now we can't general strike. It can't happen in this country. So we have to move towards something that allows us to do that. And if even if that means I have to be cringe and care about like AOC or whatever, I feel like that's very preferable to just like waiting around and hoping that in a century of constantly declining union membership, that just something's going to up and randomly change, right? So, you know, if, if I um, lived, say, where Bernie Sanders did, uh, I would vote for him just because I'd rather he have a position of illegitimate authority uh, within a brutal capitalist state than uh, another person. Um, but what I think is that if if you want to, if you have long, so it's, it is the case that electoral politics can achieve certain reforms, although it tends to be the case that when they're not connected with large mass movements that engage in direct action, uh, they don't. Uh, when they're in power, uh, they basically don't keep all their promises. Um, and if Syriza, for example, was, you know, a radical uh, party, loads of Marxists were involved in it, uh, they are elected and then they betray all their campaign promises. So just because they get elected and there's a huge amount of resources and energy that goes into that election doesn't necessarily mean they'll then actually implement um, the things they promised. And I just feel like all the energy and money that goes into something as large as a presidential uh, election or local elections would be better spent on creating small-scale local organizing and direct action that tries to improve people's lives um, in, in, you know, immediately rather than as like a kind of long-term thing in whatever way we can, but does so in a way that builds the seeds which can then um, grow into what becomes this much more large-scale direct action social movement that can do the kinds of concessions that we, we both what want and seeds are you planting? Well, so if if so, for example, if you look at the different um, direct action protests that's been done by indigenous people against um, the uh, um, pipelines, or they if you lost, look at say, the Quebec, or if you look at well, often social movements lose right because they say brutally murdered, but you still should try. Uh, or you look well, at, say, wait, the but, Quebec but June we'll, strike, where but I they win, organized. You you say that a lot of about, you say a lot of energy. Overwhelmingly, social movements lose of well, all kinds. Right, they get but, murdered if they become too successful. But I'm looking for a winning happen. strategy here. 
So what you're describing right now, this like decentralized process of like direct action and stuff, like, come on, this isn't going to lead to a general strike. Like, I don't disagree with doing it. It's good to do it and we should do it. And the pipeline protests were good and they should have been done. But you talk about a lot of money and energy going towards a big election. That money and energy mostly comes from liberals. You, the, the way you made that argument, you made it sound like it costs $100 million to try to get a president elected. What if we put that all towards decentralized movements? The only reason they were able to win that $100 million or to raise that much is because it came from liberals who wouldn't be donating money to like local direct action efforts. So the, like, I really feel like from the left's perspective, the amount of energy and money that gets put into the electoral political process is relatively minor. And in the meantime, you talk about like direct action that helps people. I can tell you how many people were helped here in Seattle or how many people have been helped in New York by socialists. Like I'm forgetting the name of the socialist that's in the Seattle City Council because I'm a bad person, but she's been a real good AOC. The work they do does affect people's lives directly. The work, the, oh yeah, Kashama Sawan, thank you. The good that you do um, as a, as a soak-dem politician in this far-right country even if you make one minor change to some other bill or policy that was going to pass, dwarfs any amount of direct action that you could possibly do with the same amount of investment. I mean, Bernie Sanders running probably radicalized millions of people, at the very least, to being amicable to social democracy. Medicare for All is now widely supported by a large number of people in the U.S., specifically because of him running. Like, these are wins you cannot get through decentralized action. The larger and more powerful our country gets, the more, unfortunately, we have to rely on utilizing the systems laid before us by the bourgeois. And I mean, I'm not asking for like us to throw all of our weight behind presidential candidates. I don't believe that. Bernie Sanders didn't believe that either. He said, you know, it's not me, it's all of us. And I, I agree with that sentiment. But I feel like, I mean, for the amount of effort it takes for the investment you put in, the potential for incremental reform to things like unions, which facilitate greater work down the line, and the potential to radicalize people using the soapbox of the electoral platform, these things are invaluable. And we know they work because fascists have been successfully using them for a really long time. They don't need collective organization the same way we do because fascism is inherently autocratic, but the extent to which the prominence of Republican politicians in media has led to the growth of fascism in this country is overwhelming. I mean, these people have a voice, you know? I don't know. I just don't see another route forward. I mean, you say put money and time towards local decentralized organizations. Feeding the homeless is great and all. I just don't know if that can be the bedrock for a socialist revolution in America. Well, so I think so. And a good example I was thinking of is the Quebec student strike, uh, where tuition um, fees were imposed, and there were politicians who made various promises who were elected who then didn't actually uh, do those promises that they would um, get rid of it. And what massively changed things was mass mobilization by students in, with support from. Um, people uh, in the area you know, who weren't students, they were regular protests against the police, fighting the police. Uh, there was huge amounts of disruption and direct action that occurred. And they had a really long-term plan of like gradually escalating things. They didn't begin with huge uh, protests fighting the police, but they kind of built up to it over time um, once they you know, won the sympathy of, of more and more people. And that was like a really... Um, you know, important victory in a way that again I think like builds the power of people to uh, of workers to change change their lives. Yeah, well, uh, 
and Bernie Sanders ran and single-handedly pushed the entire discourse for the United States of America leftward. Like, even Republicans were sympathetic to some of the claims that he was making. For every symbolic victory you can point to from, like, decentralized worker protests or whatever, I can point to, like, much more empirically demonstrable benefits that we've gotten just in the past four years from people like the Justice Dems, just from people radicalized. We're fighting for hearts and minds, aren't we? I mean, it doesn't really matter where that voice comes from, but I'd rather use the biggest megaphone. So I think it, it really depends, I think, on what your goal is, because it's like, for me, it's like I have a long-term goal of overthrowing capitalism, the state, and achieving a status class society. Mm -hmm. Now, if you just want to okay, achieve European social democracy in the United States, but I want you, which is you know, a perfectly reasonable goal, then yeah, I would absolutely think that one of the best means to do that is through... Um, Bernie and AOC and, and that kind of approach to but social change. What I'm advocating I, for would lead to what you want too, though, right? We need methods of building class solidarity in this country. It's a stepping stone. I don't think we can just up and jump to a stateless, classless society, but like... Well, no one does. Um, yeah. Just, so I, I think that if you're committed to that long-term uh, goal, and then the, the, the and, and if you look at, you know, what the kinds of ideas that Bernie and ARC are spreading, uh, they've both said in a number of interviews, you know, that capitalism is compatible with socialism. Uh, and often when they talk about socialism, they view things that historic socialists would have viewed as like extreme capitalism. Um, that, that the, a lot of the ideas that they're spreading uh, as someone, you know, living in Europe, which isn't as uh, extreme as America's in various respects, this is like kind of like centrism uh, within like some European countries, the politics advocating, but is like far left in the United States because obviously it's like extremely right wing country. Uh, and those um, positions, you know, are really good and worthwhile, right? Like universal healthcare, wouldn't that be amazing if it existed um, in the United States? But I think that will be the limit of the kinds of ideas which are going to be spread through uh, electoral politics. What about just unions? Um, well, again, like not all unions are created equal, right? Like I don't see them massively backing, you know, anarcho-syndicalist trade union movements no, that are explicitly like, committed to overthrowing the state. But, no, 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 but you no, know, but, the but kinds you... of unions they're going to be in favor of are the ones that tend to be a halt to that kind of working class struggle and end up reproducing capitalism, I'm, which I'm is what's happened looking, historically. I'm only looking for that stepping stone. I'm only looking to use electoral politics as a, as a soapbox, as a way of getting just a couple of minor concessions that could be useful to worker organization. I'm not looking to electoralism to give us all briefs on anarcho-syndicalism, like, like from, from like a, you know, um, FCC broadcasts in between each program. I'm just looking for these minor bits. Like right now, we know for a fact that the material conditions in this country are not ones which will ferment revolution. It can't, we, which will not happen. Even like, I mean, it was worse five years ago. At least now we have a populist sort of slant to some left-leaning politics. But back during the Obama years, or even further back during like the Bush administration, left-leaning advocacy in this country really was limited to like the anti-war movement and like a general unease with income inequality. Nowadays, there are people who talk about collective organization. And some of these people, a lot of these people, were big Obama stands just five or six years ago. And that movement to the left is purely, or at least in large part, a product of the fact that voice has been given to these radical ideas. In America, universal healthcare is absolutely a radical idea by people like Bernie Sanders or AOC, or even Yang, honestly. 
And I just, I think these things are, are, are useful. Um, so, even, even if these socialists who enter the government, I do think Bernie's a socialist. I do think he's mask on right now. Even he's if, hiding his power level. Right, right, exactly. I, I absolutely believe that. But even if this means that he has to tone down what he says, or inevitably down the line, his messaging becomes more diluted and he just turns into kind of a sock dem puppet. Sock puppet, yeah. Um, it doesn't really matter to me because the effects of his advocacy are still real. And would Bernie Sanders have done more good for America running in 2016 and 2020 or running a soup kitchen in, in Vermont until like he retires at 98, you know? So I think the question for me is how like Bernie Sanders is going to be doing his own thing and how can uh, socialists respond to the um, things he is doing on his soapbox, giving very great speeches on income inequality and uh, how you know, corrupt the rich are. Uh, I think the response to that is try to use this increased uh, consciousness that has been spread through Bernie and AOC and say, well, you'd like those ideas, check out these other ones, which are further to the left, which are more based on direct action and, and, and these kinds of bottom-up social movements and prefigurative politics. I would want to use Bernie as an opportunity to push people to the left, to you know, explain anarchism and Marxism to them. Yeah, that, that's what um, and, I that would be, and that would be and that would be the thing I would focus on, but it doesn't follow from that that I think that what that is that socialists themselves should be engaging in electoral politics beyond just voting for the least worst candidate as a means to try and kind of speed up that process. I feel like we kind of we should let the the um, democratic socialists do their own thing, and we can intervene within the ongoing social process and try and push it left, given the situation. Well, don't uh, we want to? If we can take advantage of Bernie's existence to radicalize people to the left, wouldn't it be to our benefit to materialize the conditions to allow that to take place again? I mean, even if it costs some time and money, if we could get Bernie to 10 years from now and we could get another big flashpoint that allows us to use their candidacy to radicalize people, I think that's probably worth the time and effort. I mean, however much money and time was put into Bernie Sanders, I guarantee you it was a more efficient use of money vis-a-vis -vis radicalization than any amount of decentralized organization. So, I mean, if you're just, if what you're saying is like, let the electorally minded socialists do what they're going to do and try to take advantage of it by radicalizing people to the left, then I completely agree with you. But I want them to keep trying. That's the thing. Because as long as they keep trying and failing, there will be more and more disappointed liberals that I can take advantage of. My audience is full of people who were big Obama stands and then got disappointed with electoralism after Bernie Sanders got shafted in 2016 and 2020. A lot of the people here right now who currently are full dyed-in-the-wool communists moved to where they are now because people like me, if not I myself, were able to... I mean, to put not too fine a point in it, exploit their disappointment. I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. You should be disappointed. This country sucks, but like, I think that's We're a great so, process. So historically, one of the main ways that people became anarchists was that they were initially trying to do electoral politics. Uh, it didn't work. Um, either like the politician in question betrayed all their promises and just like was extremely oppressive, or you know they weren't able to even win the election or and, and various other things occurred and then they became radicalized through that and joined militant trade unions so there is very much a historical precedent for people being radicalized through uh electoral uh, avenues uh, being closed off to people and they then think well what's the alternative and they realize 
us acting ourselves through you know the power we have collectively as as, as the working class yeah that's what i want with um, biden too right because biden's gonna suck like biden's already well, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah biden's yeah, already putting like apparently pete Buttigieg has been put as the um for the secretary of transportation over the course of this conversation people uh or, or, sorry biden's gonna suck the whole goddamn road but there are a lot of people who voted for biden while hoping for more and i hope that every time biden does something stupid or reactionary or, or corporatist or whatever. Um, every time he does something like that, I can point at him and then I can point at Bernie and then I can point at my channel and I can be like, hey guys, <laughs> yeah, he sure is a letdown, isn't he? Maybe if we, uh, maybe if we tried something a little more crazy next time. And I wanna, and I wanna do that. And that's, um, it's fun for me. It's, you know, um, because it's a really easy, I guess, jumping off point. I can't do that when somebody like Trump is in office because all the liberals are going to attribute the death of the planet to Trump rather than to capitalism. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a harder sell. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I fundamentally, I think we agree. The thing that frustrates me, and this is what gets me, because I'm looking at YouTube chat, I see these degenerates fucking 40 IQ dipshits uh, complaining about me. Wait, hold on. Uh, you know, we can go over a few. This convo is super interesting, but Vosh is being so yeah. America-centric, just saying, we're literally talking about America. America's the country I live in. Fuck you. There were people earlier who were saying that I'm just a soak dem. You realize that, like, these are stepping stones. You move from point to point. You can't... Okay, sorry. I'm not going to talk to chat anymore. I just saw so, so too many comments. I I, I'll need to leave soon, but I haven't, I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, but I, I just want to make one big last point. Yeah, please. Um, which is that, so you talk a lot about stepping stones and just to, you know, bring back to the anarchist argument is that what you think is a stepping stone will instead, as it were, result in the socialist movement sinking into this kind of metaphorical pond rather than stepping onto the next stone and so on until we get to socialism for the reason that i laid out at the start right socialist politicians will be transformed through the exercise of state power and become concerned of reproducing and expanding it and two uh, over time they'll become you know not concerned with um revolutionary politics and become increasingly reformist till they just want welfare state capitalism and we're even beginning at a point where you know a lot of these parties aren't even they're not even starting out as really radical and then becoming uh, just advocating welfare states under capitalism, uh, they are starting out that way. And the reason why they're starting out that way is because they're the end point of a historical process that began in the 19th century with genuine Marxist political parties doing electoral politics. And the end point was those political parties abandoning Marxism and becoming uh, reformist rather than using the struggle for reforms as a means to build towards revolution. Then let us not place our hope in these parties, but rather use them and the electoral process in general as a factory for misery and disappointment so we can best exploit people's um, concerns uh, uh, for their elected politicians and move them over to the left. No, that's always something well, we can do. So, yeah, so my position is we should persuade people who are disappointed and dissatisfied with the failure of electoral politics to achieve the goals that are very worthwhile and persuade other uh, strategies to them. And in anarchist theory, the idea is, is that the process of struggle itself transforms people and radicalizes them. So when you when people engage in direct action or when they uh, you know, are attacked by the police, that, doesn't, that isn't just something that happens, it's something that can also transform them. So they say, come to view the police as an instrument of the ruling class who isn't there to look out for them, who isn't there to um, you know, solve crimes, but is instead there to re repress the population and the interests of the capitalist class. Mm -hmm. That, or, or they come to view direct action as a way of effectively changing the world. 
and that occurs through the process of struggle. And that's why I think it's really important when thinking about strategy to think about how it transforms the people who are engaging in it. And then when we then need to connect that with the long-term goals we have, which is a state of class society, and think about how the means we're engaging in and the kinds of action we're engaging in in the moment to achieve immediate reforms to improve people's lives can be constituted as far as possible by means which will develop people into the kinds of individuals who are both capable of and driven to overthrow capitalism in the state in favor of what was historically called the free federation of free producers, which we now call socialism. So of yeah, that, that's my that's my view. But I would never I would never I would never disagree with that at all. It's just a matter of putting think, people God, in the proper conditions for them to be receptive to those distinctions, to be receptive to that. Yeah, to, I, to that I think our only real main disagreement here is that you think that electoral politics is a useful way to create a, a situation in which other kinds of politics can grow through using um, social uh, the electoral politics as a way to spread more left-wing ideas and then change the... Um, the kind of public discourse. Yeah, at um, least a little bit. Well, my well, here's my private belief, of course. My private belief is that none of this matters because in 40 or 50 years, climate change refugees are going to turn America into a fascist ethnostate. And at that point, we just need enough lefties around to, for us to not collectively get genocided. So that's my personal position, okay? I just no, want there I, to be I'm enough people in my team. I'm also scared of the ethno state in response to climate change. Yes. Uh, so we share that fear. Yeah, so that's my real... Per so for me personally, I don't think we're ever going to make it to a socialist revolution. I think there's just going to be a crackdown on people like us, and we just need to be big and strong enough to avoid losing that fight. That's my that's my actual position. But whatever I, the case may be, I mean, getting people involved in the struggle, whatever leads us there, right? Well, what I would say is that if you want people to be in a position where they're going to be able to prevent that ethno state and or, or even overthrow it if it does exist, is that they learn to have developed what anarchists historically called the spirit of initiative, uh, rather than learning to put all their hopes and dreams in a um, politician who they think is going to save them. I think that can be a really unintended negative consequence of electoral politics. And even when Bernie is saying, you know, we need to have a movement, we need to do things, unfortunately, uh, a number of people will just put all their hopes and dreams into Bernie well, rather I've than learning to act for themselves. You could look at my videos. Direct action. You can look at my videos back in January and February, but I never put all my hopes in Bernie. I don't want lefties to put all their oh, hopes in Bernie. I want liberals to put all their hopes in Bernie so they get crushed and their disappointment leads them to seek out more left-leaning ideas. I want lefties to consider Bernie Sanders like a fun coin flip, you know? But a lot of people got really invested in them. And now you have a bunch of lefties that are running around like doomer mode with their shoulders slumped forward because they actually unironically thought that Bernie Sanders was like the fucking advent of socialism in the United States. And uh, and now that it hasn't happened, they're crushed, you know? If that's what you're fighting against, then I agree with you completely because that kind of N on me is not something I want facilitated in my movement. Okay, I, I think we will agree on some things and disagree on others, but I, I enjoyed coming on here and hope uh, everyone who listened uh, could, you know, understand and follow along and that they, they thought it was uh, thought-provoking. Um, I have an article where I talk about this in way more detail called Means and Ends, the Anarchist Critique of Seizing State Power, where I lay, you know, all the, all, well, not all the arguments out, but like some of the core arguments anarchists have in a nice, clear, succinct manner that I recommend listeners read if they want to kind of uh, think about this some more. I'm sure they think positively of the conversation. And yeah, y'all should check out uh, everything that uh, Zoe does. Thank you for coming on. You said that the last time you'd been on a live stream was with uh, Stefan yeah. Molyneux. 
eight years yeah, ago. I, deb <laughs> I debated Stefan Molyneux. It was like my first big trial was a YouTuber. I, uh, I argued with him about philosophy, having studied it for a few months, while he was claiming to be like the greatest philosopher alive. Yeah. Uh, and I think I did quite a good job at owning him, despite being like 18 and barely knowing anything. <laughs> Against the greatest philosopher alive. That's a pretty, you know, well, he, pretty he strong... Played, yeah, he, he, he claimed to have solved like metaethics, which is one of the hardest disciplines in philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I talked I talked with him and he said that the only reason the industrial revolution didn't happen during Roman times was because they weren't moral enough yet. They, they hadn't <laughs> they hadn't developed the moral the moral fortitude to to build the steam engine, even though they totally could have. That that is uh unironically an idealist <laughs> conception of He's history. a wacky guy. Wacky little <laughs> Shiny headed neo Nazi. Yeah. Yes, he's uh, very scary. But yeah. okay. I, Be I, well I hope, and thank uh, you. The rest of your stream goes well and uh, goodbye. Have a good one. You too.